Well, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be able to share with you again this evening, and I hope you have the notes there handy. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and uh, as the notes there title for you, let's see if this is on, off, on. There we go. The title is Pentecostal Evangelism. Now, I would normally take a lot longer than I'm going to take this evening in uh, trying to treat all of this. It's, it could be two or three messages rather than just one. Uh, but of course, we're looking at the idea of Pentecost and the languages that God used in order to reach people with the gospel, and we have similar opportunities today. Acts chapter 2 represents a watershed moment in the history of biblical revelation and also in the life of the church as it's just really birthing. Never before in the history of mankind has God reversed the curse of Babel to allow everyone present to understand the message as he's going to do here in Acts chapter 2. And we're not going to have time to read all of the chapter. I challenge you to do that a little bit later. But what may surprise you is that in spite of the fact that we're not going to see the, this miraculous gifting of individuals to be able to speak a language that they've never studied and never spoken before, there are still in this passage some key elements which shape our philosophy of evangelism up through and beyond today. And I hope you'll be able to pick up some of these things as we go through. Uh, it's important to understand, to clear away a lot of the clutter, and first of all, get to the identity of tongues. There are two Greek words that are used throughout the passage. The first one is the word glossa, and that word is used in a variety of ways. First of all, outside this passage, Mark chapter 7, verse 35, it's used as an organ of speech. Well, that makes sense. We use the word the same way today. But within the passage, it's used two different ways. In verse 3, you have the shape of, a tongue of flame. So this is describing a shape. But also then in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, they began to speak with other tongues. Obviously, we're talking about languages here. And in verse 8, the same idea. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. There really wouldn't be a whole lot of debate that tongues means languages, known languages, if it weren't for the modern charismatic movement. It has taken, unfortunately, a, a gloss translation from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You'll notice there in verses 2, 4, 4, 13, 14, 19, and 27. You didn't write those down. I won't repeat them right now, but I can tell you later. Those are all verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where in italics in your King James Version in front of the word tongue or tongues is the word unknown. The italics indicates that it was supplied by the translators. It was an unfortunate supply of a word that was unneeded. And because of that, it has been extrapolated by individuals that this is ecstatic utterance. But here in Acts chapter 2, you have a hermeneutical principle illustrated beautifully. It is the law of first mention. 
That law states that where a term is used in a particular way, it gives body, it gives meaning to that term forward throughout the rest of Scripture. And here in Acts chapter 2, we see that used as languages, and that's the way we're supposed to understand it, unless it's obviously a shape, as in verse 4, or an organ of speech, as in Mark chapter 7. But going on from that, there's a second word that is used. It is dialectos, from which we get our word dialect. And that's seen in several different verses. Acts chapter 2 and verse 6, every man heard them speak in his own tongue, literally his own language, his own local dialect. Acts chapter 2 verse 8 is another verse there that says, How hear we every man in our own tongue? Again, it's the same word, dialect, wherein we were born. How is it that we're hearing the Word of God in exactly the language that mom taught us? That's an amazing thing. And it wasn't something that was, a, it wasn't a miracle of the ear as some have tried to make it. It was a miracle in the tongue of those who were speaking. And in fact, in Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, there are at least 15 different regional groups or dialects that are represented in this audience. At least that's how many are mentioned in those verses. Fifteen. That's going to be interesting as we go on through some of the other things we're going to look at this evening. But what's important for us to note is that the Spirit of God did not simply provide distinct languages at this time, but rather the precise dialect of each hearer. So I ask you a question. Is God interested in people hearing the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in a language that they very easily understand? In other words, we're saying God doesn't expect everyone to learn English before they hear the gospel. Are we clear on that? And that's important to realize here in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Obviously, no one, well, few people, expect someone to learn English to hear the gospel on a foreign field. There are some in the King James only controversy that are really literally saying no one can be saved unless they hear the gospel in English and accept it from the standpoint of the King James Version of Scripture. That, my friends, is heresy because Paul didn't speak English, and if that's the case, Paul will not be in heaven. Jesus Christ did not speak English. I won't even go on to the blasphemous implication that would leave. So we're looking at something that is the heart of God in reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, beyond the identity of tongues, we need to consider the pervasiveness of tongues within this passage. We're just concerned with how it is used throughout Acts chapter 2. We could go from beyond that, but it's, it would be too exhausting to do this evening. Initially, as this passage unfolds, what's happening? Verse 1, the day of Pentecost is fully come. The believers are gathered together in one place. There are approximately 120 based on the previous chapter. And as they are praying, the Spirit of God descends upon them, the cloven tongues as of fire resting upon each one, and they speak in other languages as God gives them utterance. So, at the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Who is that all? I have already referenced it as is right there at the end of chapter 1. Apparently, all 120 believers spoke in other languages. That would include the women as well as the men. 
It would include the old as well as the young, whoever was there in that initial assembly. Before then, they go out from this room, this upper room where they were in chapter 1, but it's probable that everything in chapter 2 occurs outside, perhaps it is said, in the area of Solomon's porch. That's interesting if you've ever been to Israel, if you know anything about Solomon's porch. Who's ever been to Israel? Anyone? I had the privilege a couple years ago. What's Solomon's porch? Who can tell us? Well, it is a gathering place. It is on the Temple Mount. It is part of the Temple Mount complex, or was. It's not anymore, of course. And there where a lot of people would have gathered together is a possibility of where they were located. There are other ideas hypothesized, but it really doesn't matter. But it's not only here in the initial phase of this message or this occurrence of Acts chapter 2, it's also noted throughout the preaching. This is something that's frequently missed as we read through this passage. But I want to let you know that I didn't just push my ideas onto Scripture here. It seemed to me that what I'm going to show you is the truth, and then you go and study it out and find out, does anybody agree with me? Because if no one agrees with me, I'm probably wrong. You ever notice that? It's a little saying, if it's new, it isn't true. If it's true, it isn't new. Right? So, I wanted to find out what's going on here. First off, Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, They spake in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That means one apostle, one of the 120, another one, the idea of sequentially, one after the other or in some sort of organized way so that a message can be understood. Because what if all of us, we're probably a little less than 120, but let's just, you know, what if all of us stood up and started speaking in different languages all at the same time? What would result? Chaos. Absolutely. A cacophony of noise signifying nothing. That's not what happens here, is it? They speak as the Spirit gives them utterance. But there's something else that's interesting here. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, it says, after the accusation of these are drunk, and Peter stands up, and it says, he stands up with the eleven, with the other disciples or apostles. So it wasn't just Peter standing in front of this, the multitude that gathers together. He's standing up with all of the other ones. He's going to, first of all, refute that they're, the idea, the accusation that they're drunk. And that really is kind of a funny thing. We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, but, you know, the, the, some of the humor of it. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 15, he's, again, the first statement, these are not drunken. Look at these guys. He says, it's too early in the morning. We don't, unless we've been drinking all night, we wouldn't be drunk. But secondly, what we're saying makes sense. So, who would have the idea that someone is drunk? Well, let's put it this way. If you, right now, hearing my speech, how many of you think I'm drunk? Now, if I started speaking Spanish, si voy a predicar este mensaje en español, ¿cuántos de ustedes me entienden? A few of you understand me, but the rest of you could come to the conclusion I'm drunk. So I think it was Pennsylvanians who were there who were saying, these guys are drunk because I don't understand them. 
That was nasty, wasn't it? That was mean. It was probably the individuals there who only spoke one language. I don't understand you, therefore there's something wrong with you. I think that's how the accusation comes out. But Peter's saying, your translator's not drunk. And everyone who gets the translation gets the point as it goes down the line of those who can speak. Conservative commentators are nearly unanimous with the conclusion that I came to as a result that the message was translated throughout. We have the message of Peter starting in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, or he's rebutting this charge, and then on from that through to the end of the chapter, verse 30-something, he's preaching a message. This isn't all he said. This is a summation of his arguments. And it seems to be clear throughout, and we'll get the indication of that later here at the last um, section of the message, it seems to be that the entire message was translated. Now, we've talked about 15 language groups. Can you imagine Peter speaking and then sequentially 15, 15 translations? Or maybe it's kind of people kind of gather to the translator that's speaking their language and all of the translation is taking place simultaneously. Peter says something, then they all translate into the various languages. That would make sense because if I don't speak French, I don't need to hear French. So Peter and the others, it appears, are in concert throughout this. How do we figure that out? Look at what happens at the conclusion of the message. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Isn't that interesting? Because if Peter was there preaching by himself and no one is with him, remember, he stood up with the eleven, if we assume that the eleven sat down and Peter kept preaching, then why at this point say men and brethren? It seems to be they're responding to everyone who's up on the raised platform, up on the top step or whatever, all of the, Peter and the translators, let's say. Men and brethren. What shall we do? So Peter, once again, is the leader in this, but he, they, the rest of the apostles are included in this as well. Now, going on from there, we need to see, and this is a part that I think is very interesting, the effects of tongues or foreign languages. What happens when we use the language that God has given us to be able to share the gospel with someone else? If you don't speak more than one language, you still have at least one language you can use. You can also use gospel tracts and give the gospel to someone that you might not be able to speak to in another way. The first thing I think that is the result of this translation that's going on, these different languages, is curiosity is aroused. Acts chapter 2 verse 6 says, when this was noised abroad... The idea being that it went from mouth to mouth to mouth. People are just spreading the news all over the place. And the result then is that a multitude comes together and then the message is given. So God creates a stir in Jerusalem. It's the day of Pentecost. So there are thousands and thousands of people thronging Jerusalem. It's not hard to have thousands of people there 
at Solomon's porch or on the stairs outside the Temple Mount. It would be easy to gather up a group this large. But they come together, it seems, primarily in the first case, out of curiosity. But from this curiosity, something else develops, a moment of confusion. Why is that? Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 6. It says, now, when this was noise abroad, the multitude came together and were, what? Confounded is the word. They were perplexed. They were disturbed, confused. Verse 7 says three different things. It says, first of all, that they were amazed. Then it says that the group marveled. And finally, it says that they said, Why, how in the world are these Galileans? And we need to add a word in there. They're actually saying, how are these ignorant Galileans speaking all of these languages? Are not these who speak Galileans? These were people who were known not to be very well educated. They weren't going to speak the languages of the Roman Empire. They're going to speak only what they have to. Verse 12, they have a question. What meaneth this? What are we supposed to understand from all of this that's going on? This is confusing. And then, of course, the accusation of verse 13, these men are drunk. That indicates some of the confusion that was going on. But then the use of languages does something else. Curiosity is fine. It draws people. Confusion's not so good. It can tend to disperse the group, but instead they were still gathering together. And what you're really looking for is coming up next, the point of clarity. That's seen throughout the text as well. Verse 6, they, every, they said, how hear we everyone in his own language? Verse 8, we hear in our own tongue wherein we were born. In Acts chapter 2, verse 11, we do hear them speak in our own tongues, and note this last phrase, the wonderful works of God. Clarity? Absolute clarity. They knew exactly what was being said. And that's what happens when, again, we're able to speak to someone in the language wherein they were born. And that's the beauty of cross-cultural evangelism using the language of the target audience. And from this clarity, because things are so clear and understandable, concentration on the part of the group. Now, this message, as I mentioned, is kind of distilled for us. It covers verses 14 through 36, to be exact. And you don't find any interruptions. So, they're paying attention throughout the message. And verse 40 adds another little wrinkle to it all, where it says, And with many other words did he, that is Peter, testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. So, the many other words of Peter following the question, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They're a very good audience because they're paying attention. They're concentrating on the message. And that concentration produces something else that's very desirable, and that's conviction. Where's the conviction? Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. That's a very graphic description of conviction, is it not? They were pricked in their heart. 
It literally means to be pierced with grief or fear, remorse over their sinful state, their rejection of the Messiah. Many of these people who are now there at Pentecost were there 50 days earlier when Christ was crucified. So they know the one about whom Peter is speaking. And then the response of Peter or to the, of these two Peter and the rest of the apostles, they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? Again, conviction. Have you had the experience of witnessing to someone and bringing them to the final point of decision and that person have a question for you like is phrased here? So what am I supposed to do? You know the fruit is ripe when that happens. You know it's not quite ripe if you get to the end and the person's like, nice weather we're having. Do you see that car that just went by here? I used to have one like that. Unfortunately, I've had far too many witnessing opportunities that ended like that. Because there was no concentration, there was no conviction either. But it's a great thing when you get to that point and the person is saying, I need what you're telling me. And then conviction can result in the final result that we're going to look at here this evening, and that is conversion. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says, There were added unto them, unto the group of 120 disciples who began the day, about 3,000 souls. What an amazing day. What an amazing moment. And it, Scripture says they were baptized, and I used to always wonder, how in the world do you get 3,000 people baptized in a day? But then, when I had the opportunity to visit in Israel, we found that off to the one side on the bottom of the Temple Mount, there were all sorts of areas for ceremonial cleansing. There were little pools with water in them. They were sheltered so that women very modestly could go into them and could have been baptized. And undoubtedly, they used all of that area, all of those little pools there, and everyone was baptized. And you know, who was baptizing whom? Leave that to your imagination. But Peter didn't baptize them all. He wouldn't have had time. The 12 disciples wouldn't have baptized them all either. So apparently, they baptized one another starting with the 120 and deputizing people from there. You're baptized, you baptize those, a group over there. <laughs> what an amazing thing. What happens today when we use the gift of languages to reach out to people? Well, I think we need to understand that we should not expect the supernatural gift of foreign language as in Acts chapter 2. So if someone shows up here at your next missions conference and says, we want to go to the lost Indian tribes, I don't know, of Ethiopia or some South American country. So where are you going to language school? Oh, we're not. We're just expecting the Spirit's going to give us the gift of tongues. Do you think you're likely to support them? No. Uh, I jokingly have told people that I have the gift of tongues because I learned Spanish rather quickly and learned it rather well. And so I would joke about it that way. But we realistically know that God can do this. God could, in a moment of time, give any one of us the ability to speak in any language he wanted to give us. But that's not how God operates. As I said, this is the first time, only time in Scripture that it had happened up to this point. 
So it's not like we're to expect it as a norm from here on. So the sad fact of the matter is we must learn the language of our target audience. Pastor mentioned that English is rather difficult to learn. How many vowels are there in the English language? Five, and then some other quasi-vowels, right? Sort of like Pluto, it's almost a planet. Okay. They have the same vowels in Spanish, and those vowels each have, in Spanish, one sound. How many sounds do our five vowels in the English language have? Sixty? <laughs> Sixteen. I think I've heard estimates ranging over 20. It's a lot. We use vowels. We're very hard on vowels. For instance, there's a place in California, Street, and in English it's called Sepulveda. Tell me how to spell that from the sounds I just made. Sepulveda. Now I'll pronounce it for you in Spanish, the language of its origin. Sepulveda. Now you hear, five, you hear different vowels there, don't you? But see, we're very hard on our vowels. We use schwa, uh, for a lot of our vowels. And that makes it very difficult. We also can have virtually the same organization of letters and the words pronounced differently, like the word enough looks a lot like the ending of the word dough, and yet they're pronounced completely differently. So a person coming from another language looks at English and says, this language makes no sense. How do you people speak this language? And trying to, someone learning from Spanish background, trying to learn English, they see the word sit, and they say seat, because that's the way you say that, that combination of letters in Spanish. Makes no sense to them to do it any other way, just like it doesn't make much sense for you that they do it that way. But no, it makes sense. So waiting for someone to learn English, that could take a while. It's easier maybe for us to learn their language. We have to learn the language, but we should utilize the gifts of those who know foreign languages, whatever they may be. You may have learned them in a high school Spanish class, just like my wife and I learned Spanish, well, an introduction anyway to Spanish, in a high school Spanish class in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, before that in Mechanicsburg. So, but, you know, we didn't really go on with it. We should have. But it's interesting that we should utilize these gifts, and it doesn't matter where we are, because Using the language of the target audience should be our practice here as well as on the foreign field. It's the same thing. People need to understand. The best way they can understand is in the language that they speak the best. And if we'll do that, I think we can expect the same results in our outreach as we've seen that God gave there on that day. I'm not talking about 3,000 people coming to know the Lord in one day. I'm talking about A through F in the previous point, the last of which is conversion. Not everyone will believe, but some will. This is what we can do. Now, all of that said, you're aware that we're trying to start Hispanic ministry outreach here. And I hope you get genuinely excited about it. You might say, there's not much I can do to help you out, Brother Fawn Miller. I'm just not gifted in Spanish. 
that's fine. I have tracks here. We just relabeled them. There were a bunch of tracks that we had and some tracks that had no labels. And so we put the on there. It has the church name. On the bottom line, it says, if you need Spanish, call my phone number. So that's nice. They're not going to call you. You can use these. Please hand them out. We're working on invitations for our first uh, service, which we're trying to start it the 5th of August. And those should be out. They, they may be out, may be ready for Sunday. I'm not sure. We were having a little bit of trouble getting everything arranged and organized. But I think we got it finally. All, some of the glitches worked out of it. And uh, those should be ready to go. And you can hand those out. You don't necessarily know what's said on that, in, that invitation, believe me. All it says is that Faith Baptist Church is announcing a new ministry. Starting August 5th, we will present services in Spanish as well. And then it says that Bill Fonmiller, who spent 20 years in Puerto Rico, will be heading that up. His wife, Teresa, helping with the ladies and children's program. There's a picture of us. Oh, I said it made her feel like she was on a milk carton. She was missing or something. But it's so that there's some name and face recognition that people can put things together and understand what's going on. And then we have our phone number again on there so that people can contact us for more information if they need transportation, whatever the case may be. How many people do you run into on an average day that you hear speaking Spanish? Depends on where you go, doesn't it? I returned something to Home Depot today. And as I was coming out, I heard a guy talking with another guy on his cell phone, and it, the whole conversation was Spanish. There are people all around us who need Spanish right now. Should they learn English? Absolutely. We'd love to help them do that. But wouldn't it be great to teach them English using the Bible to do it? Instead of letting them hear all the vulgar language that people like to trick uh, unknowing people into saying bad words so that they can laugh at them when they think they're saying something perfectly innocent. Believe me, there are people in this town who will do that to folks who don't know any better. We have an opportunity. I hope you'll help take advantage of that opportunity. Take some tracks. The invitations, as soon as we have them ready, they'll be made available to you. Take those. Hand them out anywhere and everywhere. Let's just pray about it and see what God will do. But obviously, if we're going to see God do anything, we've got to put our feet to the, to the pavement and do what we can to make sure that the Word gets out to people who need to hear the gospel. Let's go ahead and end in a word of prayer, and then we'll break up to have, pray for the requests that are given this evening.